This week's episode has two parts. In the first and main portion of the show, our guest is Cristina Robles, who joins us from Guadalajara, Mexico. Also known as Lady Tequila, Chris is a sommelier and a certified tequila expert. Chris is currently the Global Advocacy Coordinator for House of Tequila at Pernod Ricard. Make sure you check out Chris online on Instagram at LadyTequila underscore. In the bonus part of the episode, previous guest of the show, Elissa Dunn, returns for a new recurring segment, and we talk with Alyssa about her experiences talking on a panel at Tales of the Cocktail, as well as how she develops her instructional bartending videos. You can find Alyssa on Instagram at the.badass.bartender. Enjoy the show. Okay, we're back with another episode of the Industry Podcast, and we should mention I mean, the Industry Podcast is supported by The Case for Wine. Your local agent for the southwestern Ontario region is Rick Brancelli. Rick lives in Waterloo and is happy to take care of all of your wine needs, whether you're a wine buyer, food or, and beverage manager, sommelier, or private individual, Rick will be happy to discuss your wine needs. Act now and receive $25 off your first order by mentioning The Industry Podcast. And this is the Industry Podcast. I'm Kip. This is Dan. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And yourself? How are you this fine late summer afternoon evening? Yeah, <laughs> I'm doing all right. I don't know what time nice. of the day it was. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. Next time, just look out the window. Yeah, uh, I haven't had time all day. This working for a living thing ruins my life. I know. What, what are you going to do? It works for jerks. Yeah, uh, it sure is. That lottery better come, pan through for me. I'm screwed. Oh, yeah, the redneck retirement plan. Yeah, Congratulations uh, thank on you. that. I hope that works out for you. Yeah, I put all my money into it. <laughs> <laughs> 600 bucks a week in the lottery tickets <laughs> and so far still working from home that's correct okay great um <laughs> yeah all right well let's get down to business here first of all we should mention that if you live in the waterloo region yours truly the host of the industry podcast is running for a mayor of the city of waterloo Ooh. let's make sure that everyone comes out and votes on october 24th advanced voting is on october 8th that's even better for us. So if you live in Waterloo, come support me, or at least come out and vote for anyone, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Not enough people get involved in municipal elections. That's right. Municipal election turnout is generally pretty low, just under 30% or around 30%. So That's it's good right. to see a lot more people come out when possible. And if you want to learn more about my specific platform, you can search it on kipsaunders.ca, K-Y-P-P-S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. And let's talk about the business shit, which mm-hmm. is Sugar Run in downtown Kitchener. That's the speakeasy that I own. And uh, you should come check that out. Con- events going on all the time. We have burlesque. We have live stand-up every Wednesday. We're having much more, uh, a lot more live music all the time. So you'll be want to checking that out as well. And then Uptown Waterloo, Babylon Sisters Wine Bar, where we have DJ Bane spinning every Friday night. We have DJ Nana spinning the last Saturday of every month. And over the next couple of months, we have the great Paul Mitchell and his jazz trio on Thursday nights mm. once a month. And you can also try some of the wines from Rick Bericelli Wines. That's right. Rick at the Case for Wine. Lots of his wines available at Babylon Sisters Wine Bar. So check that out. And now let's talk about the why we're here, the show. If you like what we're doing here on the Industry Podcast, you should subscribe, rate, and review. That helps us out a great deal. In addition, if you would like to be a guest on the show... You can hit us up at the Industry Podcast on Instagram, or you can email us directly, info at the industrypodcast.club. Finally, as always, a big shout out to Zach Hanna at zachhanna.co 
That's the man who does the great artwork that you see on our Instagram page. Mm-hmm. So check him out for all your graphic arts needs. He is tremendous. Anything else you want to talk about before we bring our guest in? I got nothing smart to say. Okay, that's okay. Uh, par for the course. Let's yes. move along. Consistency <laughs> is key. <laughs> We're going to bring in Christina Robles. She is coming to us from Guadalajara, Mexico. How are you, Chris? Hey, guys. I'm doing great. And you? We're all right. We're all right. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for doing the show. Yeah, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for the invitation. Like, it's an honor for me to be here. Oh, well, I think it's more of an honor for us, but yes. we'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you've had a long, pretty long career in the service industry and then getting into what you're doing now. Talk, maybe let's jump into it by talking specifically about what your current role is and how you would describe it. I'm actually working as the Global Advocacy Coordinator for Pernod Ricard slash House of Tequila, and House of Tequila is the brand owner who's in charge of all the tequila and mezcals from the group. Probably it will sound like huge, like just the title of Global Advocacy Coordinator. Yeah, yeah. But basically part of my job is develop and create new strategies and programs to help the bartenders in their careers. Like global contests that we have with the brand, like huge event, like World 50 Best, like BCB, Barra Mexico, and programs. Basically our programs who's focused in bartenders and brand ambassadors. Mm, okay. What I do. <laughs> right. So, I, I mean, that sounds like a lot though. Like, like maybe walk us <laughs> through like what an average day for you looks like. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a lot, but I, I really, really enjoy it. I used to be the Mexican brand ambassador for one of the brands. So I, I, I really enjoy doing it. Of course, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, mm. sometimes when I have meetings with the team from China or Japan, of course, my day will start at 7 a.m. Because between the difference between Mexico and Asia, right. or if I have meetings with Australia, my day probably will end at 9 p.m. again because of the difference. But it's not always so. So basically, you're working for a big agency, and you're focused on the tequila brands in that agency. So what are what are the brands that that you're repping there? We have Altos Tequila, Olmeca Tequila, Avion Tequila, and also we have Delma Gay Mezcal. I have to say that we're going to be like not in charge 100, percent but we develop some things with Ojo de Tigre Mezcal, which is a new brand here in Mexico. And also with one Mexican whiskey, the name is Abasolo, and one um, corn liquor, and the name is Nixta. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so Mexican that's, spirits, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, basically, you're focused on Mexican spirits within yeah. this bigger agency. And so, for people who don't know, sorry, the agency is called... The company is Pernod Ricard. Pernod Ricard, right. So, mm. uh, so obviously, they deal with Pernod, but like, what, what are some of the other big brands in the agency? So, we have brands like Chivas, Jameson. Absolute, Havana Club, Beef Eater, Valentine's, like it's it's a, a huge portfolio, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. So for you specifically, so I'm kind of interested in this because you're dealing with essentially Mexican brands in this massive conglomerate of uh, a company that reps all these different spirits. Like what kind of day-to-day interaction do you have with sort of the higher-ups in the, the Pernod company? I mean... It's a great question because because if we compare with another huge tequila companies, I have to say that, of course, the budget it was it, it's not the same. So imagine, imagine us trying to win territory in the United States, for example, with against huge huge brands who have a lot of budget. Of right. course, it's a challenge, but for us, and part of the mindset is like be 100% focused in bartender and brand ambassadors because for us. 
they are like the perfect channel to win the battle in the own trade with the bartenders and the bar managers that actually work there. So it's mm-hmm. not the same when someone recommends you something that literally comes from the heart or, or some brand ambassador that actually really care about the bartender's program and the bartender career against someone who just show up into your venue and told you like, hey, I have money, just put my brand up there. Right. It's kind of different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so just so I have it I have it right, you have so you also have like brand ambassadors for each individual brand of tequila or mezcal as well. And then you just are are you sort of just overseeing all those brand ambassadors? Is that most of your work? Yeah. It depends of the of the country, it depends of the brands. For example in Mexico, the brand ambassador that I have is focused only in tequila. But I have one guy in South Africa who's focusing mezcal and tequila. So it depends on the brands and depends on the market. Huh. And so how much of your work is actually spent physically in bars and how much is just basically <laughs> talking like over Zoom to people like you're doing with us right now? <laughs> I think it's 50-50. Yeah? Okay. So you still yeah. are out there like actively in bars occasionally? Because it sounds like if you're looking after people in South Africa and Asia and like a lot of your fucking time is probably spent (laughs) doing this. (laughs) I mean, of course, uh, after COVID, it just like hit us. It was like two years of not traveling. Mm -hmm. And my first travel, it was like two months ago. I went to New York from the North America War 50 West. And I think that I'm going to start traveling again, which makes me really happy because I can be quiet in one place. Like I'm not that office person. I, I don't work like that. Yeah, and so that's probably why you enjoyed getting into this work in the first place was because of the travel, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and so pre-pandemic, how much of your time was spent actually traveling around the world? It was a lot because before pandemic, I used to be the Mexican brand ambassador from Alto Tequila. So right. part of the job was like traveling all around the cities, like spreading this agave love and giving mentoring and master classes. I had the chance to release Altos in Madrid and also in Cuba. So I travel a lot. And I have to say that it's something I really, really like and love about this industry. It's just the fact that you have the chance to listen to the stories behind the people. So it's not all, not only about the cultures and like traveling. Of course, when you travel to another country, you will learn a lot. But it's like, what's, what's beyond? Like, I really love to listen to people's stories. Like, who are you? Why are you working here? Why are you starting as a bartender? Why do you want to be a brand ambassador? You know, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy it. So, right. yeah, I used to travel a lot. <laughs> and one of the interesting things about you is that you're also a sommelier. And if, if somebody else listening right now is a sommelier, you might be interested in Sicilian winery Tasca del Madrita. It's a special producer in the case for wine portfolio. Tasca is held in high regard, winning the 2019 European Winery of the Year by the Wine Enthusiast magazine. Also in 2021, they were awarded the prestigious Green Emblem awarded by Robert Parker. 25 awards were presented worldwide, and only three were presented in Italy, with Tasca being one of the recipients. Their focus on sustainability and industry is industry-leading, and Tasca has five vineyards in Sicily, from high atop Mount Etna, Tascante, to more inland, Regaliale, and Whitaker Island, to name three. Tasca was the first winery in southern Italy to produce a single vineyard of wine named Rosso del Cante. For a full range of Sicilian wines, think Tasca from the bone dry Regali Bianco, the bold Cabernet based Cygnus, and finally the Rosso del Cante, arriving soon, is the Regaliale 
San Francisco Cabernet Sauvignon. All of these wines are rep by Rick Baroncelli, Rick at thecaseforwine.com. Mention the industry podcast for $25 off your first order. And also know that the Regaliale Bianco is available right now at Babylon Sisters Wine Bar, Uptown Waterloo. Wonderful. Yes, it is wonderful. Yes. Yes, I've been enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've had a couple glasses when I've been there. Yeah. If I yeah. can remember them. Uh, <laughs> usually I, uh, it's after having a few more. So. Well, that's great. Just uh, mention that Rick at the Case for Wine gets you blackout drunk. He does. Yeah. I, can, I just can't have one. It's like Tic Tacs. <laughs> Uh, but getting back to you, Chris, you are actually a sommelier as well, and you also obviously have done a lot of studying in the field of tequila. So talk to us a little bit about some of that uh, educational work you've done. It was, it's actually one of, one of a funny story because, yeah, as you say, I studied for being sommelier after I studied culinary arts. And I, I did it because I wanted to have this master's degree. But once I was studying that, I remember that we have one subject, what it was like spirits in general. And I remember that my day one, when they start talking about tequila, I was like, I want to do that my whole life. I don't know how. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I need to be <laughs> in the tequila world. So yeah. two years after that, I was working in some in, in, in a restaurant here in Guadalajara, Mexico, and some guy from Bruno Ricard like, literally found me. And he offered me the job as a portfolio brand ambassador only in Guadalajara. I was like, I, I need I need to go deeper in that. So I studied for becoming a tequilier, which is like sommelier, but just focus on tequila. And it was like a six month, six six months of studying that. But I totally received that and, and that literally pushed me to keep working on develop new programs so I can transform people into the agave geeks because I, I that's what I really love to teach like how tequila is made like not, not only because it's the only spirit that I drink basically that's why everybody called me lady tequila yeah. uh, it's the only <laughs> spirit that I have but I really love everything that involved like the production process where it comes the history and of course as a Mexican I'm so proud to represent this and of course like to spread this gift that we have to the rest of the world like having tequila so it was it was really good and after that um i as i told you i started as a portfolio brand ambassador and one year after that they offered me like having just altos like in, in the national level not only in some cities from mexico right well this is uh we have listeners from all over the world so this is a good platform for you to discuss the maybe a little bit of what you you would teach in a master's class to somebody who's trying to learn about tequila and obviously you're not going to run through the whole class here but like if you were to give fresh audience the basics on what you would teach them if you were giving like sort of beginner's course on understanding tequila and mezcal how would you do that there's a lot of places where you can find information of course but i will suggest like go deep into the crt which is the tequila chamber and they always have all the information on their website and they offer sometimes i think it's every six months they offer one like hers when you can have this distinctive tea with each like the category who value as a, an expert on the tequila category that will be the basic but even i'm working for a huge company um and and that's one of the reasons why everybody called me lady tequila it's I always open my social media and I always open all the all the information where everybody can find me. And, and if they have any questions, like simple questions like, Chris, I'm in a restaurant and this is the tequila 10 card. So why should I ask for it? So from that to like, hey, I, I really want to know about the tequila process. So I, uh, for me, it's like a pleasure to explain it. But yeah, I'll go into the CRT or this... Um, there's one book that I always recommend is the Tequila Larousse, 
or in Mexico, La Luz del Tequila. Uh, and you can find all the information that you have to know about tequila category over there. And what's, uh, this is actually a good time for us to mention some of your social media. So if our listeners want to follow you to learn some of this stuff that you're posting about, where, where would they do that? Mainly on Instagram, and it's just like Lady Tequila Underground. Okay. That's, my, that's my social media. Right. <laughs> so backing up a little bit, like you're growing up in Mexico, obviously you're into tequila and mezcal. But like, how did you break into the service industry to begin with? I started when I was 16, so it was 16 years ago, and I started as a hostess. It okay. was like my high school job, <laughs> so I've been into restaurants since forever. But as I told you, I started as a, as a portfolio brand ambassador, but I have to confess that it was not an easy way to start because, of course, when the company gave me just Altos, I have to move to Mexico City, which is the main city of the country. And I was by myself. I know like anybody there. And my role started after one of the biggest, and I think for me is the best bartender that Mexico have, Jose Luis Leon, this guy who operates Limantur, like part of the world 50 best bars. I started with his position. So all oh, Mexico knows him. And, and as I say, for me, he's the best bartender that Mexico have. I was not a bartender, but I was such a killer. So imagine, imagine me like seven years ago, arriving to a city, like I was a total stranger for the industry. And I remember that when I started giving my mentorings, the first question that everybody told me were like, oh, are you a bartender? And I was like, <laughs> no, not really. Uh, not really. <laughs> I was like, of course, of course, I have to confess, and, and, and it's true, and all the people that know, probably not not everybody knows this story, but of course it affected me, because I was like, with this emotion and this passion to spread all the information that I have, and the first question that everybody asked me was like, are you a bartender? I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Of course, I remember that I was like sitting in the table like, do I make the right, the, the right decision? Like, I, I, I don't know if I could handle this because, of course, I'm not a bartender and I'm playing this role after this guy. Then I realized that my weakness will make me stronger. So after that, when I was going to start my mentoring, so I was like, hey, I'm Chris Robles. Everybody knows me, Lady Tequila. I'm a tequilier. I'm not a bartender, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm a tequilier and I can explain you everything about the tequila category. Right. And everybody was like, okay, now I can say, I have nothing to say, so I can piss you off. Like, you right. already say that you're not a bartender. So I was like, I'm not a bartender, guys. I'm not a bartender. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like, then you can be like, I can mix you a beautiful cocktail. It's either tequila in a glass or tequila in a glass with ice. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, of course, after, after the time I, I learned, but for me, it's a thing with a lot of respect. You know, I studied culinary arts and I remember the best chef that I ever knew. It was people who start like washing dishes, yeah. like not because they study something like the biggest chef of history. They started like cutting or chopping onion, whatever. Yep. 100%. And I, I never liked to come into a kitchen and say like I'm a chef just because I started. I was it was like no I, I no. know how to create food and that's it, and for me it's the same with bartenders of course now after seven years seven years later, <laughs> now I can I can develop a training strategy for the bartenders I can develop a training strategy for the brand ambassadors, but I don't like to say that I'm a bartender because I never work behind a bar. Right. And for me, it's a lot of respect. So I will never say I'm a bartender. I well, know how to make a 
That's good to hear because I get a lot of I get a lot of dipshits who give me resumes who are like I went to bartending school so therefore I'm a bartender and I'm like you haven't worked one second behind the bar so you're not a fucking bartender uh, exactly that's yeah. my point it's yeah. like, of course I can make an espresso martini but I've never worked behind a bar so yeah. I'm not a bartender but it's also like uh, I like what you said about the whole uh, studying culinary school but not um, but then like you hadn't been in a kitchen chopping an onion or whatever it, and but you can relate it back to sort of your career starting as a hostess that's how you get this experience more than just it's, it's always more valuable than what you read in a book or what you learn in a class exactly yeah. Oh, 100%. Touched, yeah touched on the culinary school what made you decide to go into school for like culinary art <laughs> You like to cook it all a lot, or is it? My dad asked me the same question. Because- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad's still asking me this question. <laughs> my dad is a lawyer, so when I told him, he was like, is that an actually a career? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pay for that? <laughs> I have to say, like, the culture. And as, as I told you, like, every dish, every food, every drink, every cocktail has an history behind Mm-hmm. I was like, I, I really want to know what's behind everything. And, and yeah, I think it was, and also about the grandmas, you know, uh, I don't know, have you ever saw Coco, this Disney movie? I know the story about the Mexican grandmas who was like cooking for the entire family. And it was like, I, I grew up like that. Like, oh, okay. the grandmas yeah. like cooking a lot of things for the entire family for 30 or 40 people. And it was like, I was always like in the kitchen, like asking, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" And I was ah. like, "I need to say that." There's something romantic about like putting together a meal or or a cocktail for like somebody and like the care that goes into it, all the different ingredients, and then like <laughs> there, there's something so much better than that than like microwaving a burrito or <laughs> fucking pouring a glass of draft <laughs> beer. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's just like like yeah when you put together a meal there's like sort of a there's a, I don't know it's romanticized to me anyway at least like so I, I get it completely so to be a tequilier like you said it was a six month course and what kind of things are you learning in the in that course like outside of sort of the history of how they build tequila you need to identify like with a blind tasting oh like which tequila side from the highlands and which tequila side from the tequila valley. Oh, really? You have, yeah, you have to know, like, the name of the brand, the name of the valley, and, yeah, and if it's an H, an extra H, or an ultra H. So, yeah. Oh, I'm, I, I'm interested in that, not to cut you off, but, like, talk to us a little bit about, like, what, what are some of the tequila brands that people would know about that come from the highland compared to the valley? Do you want the name of the brands? Yeah, yeah. Okay, if we go into Tequila Valley, we will have Cuervo, mm-hmm. Terradura, We'll find Casa Sousa, like okay. yeah. we will have um, Fortaleza, we'll find Cascawin, which kind of uh, of new, we'll find 1800, uh, Maestro Tequilero. Okay, mm, I don't like Castillo. any of these tequilas so far. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know. I'm guessing <laughs> well, I'm more of a Highland me. guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, from the valley, you will, you will know Cuervo and Herradura. Yeah, like and, and Sousa and like... And yeah. Sousa. Ugh, ugh. yeah. Now, but if we go uh, to the highlands, we will find Don Julio, we'll find Tapatio, Ocho Tequila, Altos, of course, Patron, Casadores, Casamigos, Siete Leguas, like, yeah. And it's it's a fact that the sugar concentration that the Agaves has are higher in the highlands than in the Tequila Valley. Oh, is that what makes, and so it makes sort of like a softer tequila that way, right? Yeah, that's yeah. the reason why. 
Uh-huh. Interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, see, um, we're fucking learning here. That's <laughs> why, why we have people like you on the show. Um, I was just writing all those notes down, actually, for myself. <laughs> That's great. Because yeah. next week I'm going to come over to do this podcast, and he's going to have some of these tequilas. It's yes. going to be ah, Yeah, you can yeah. say that. Like, now I know that the yeah. is from the Highlands. <laughs> fucking Highland, yes. <laughs> but that's very interesting to know that the sugar content's higher and that's what makes for a software product. That's interesting. So one of the things we discussed with a couple other people who are tequila uh, experts that have been on the show is what is your opinion on like the sort of celebrity tequila brands that are taking over now and how they're <laughs> affecting the tequila industry in general? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, to be honest. Yeah, I don't like it because <laughs> <laughs> it's like... If you can see it, like in my eyes, it's a lot of. There's a lot of people, a lot, a lot of hands who are involved to making a tequila. The story behind, and once you decide to create a brand, I think it it needs to be because it's something that you really, really love. And everything, like if you don't have passion for anything you do in your life, it's like, why are you doing that? Like with you guys, with your podcast, of course you love it. Of course you have passion, but it's like. It feels, and I totally agree, and I understand why people say, like, this cultural appropriation, because it is what it is. It's like you came to this country, like, not knowing anything that represents tequila, and just because you have the money and you try to pretend that you really love the heritage and you really love what's behind, it's like... For, if you ask me, like, all the Mexicans don't like the, the, the celebrity brands. Mm. We don't like it. Yeah, and it's because it's like the fucking hot spirit now. <laughs> so that all, like, uh, uh, honestly, like, what, 10 years ago, it was all celebrity vodka, right? And now it's like, oh, celebrities discovered that te- people like drinking tequila because it's a different kind of experience when you're getting, when you get a little buzz on with tequila. It's a much mellower, sort of, like, mm-hmm. almost high experience, which is, I love it. We've... Dan and I drink a lot of tequila, <laughs> but um, uh, I but it's like it's become the hot thing. So now all these celebrities are moving, and next thing started with George Clooney and whatever, and now with like the every every fucking half-ass celebrity has a tequila brand now, from like The Rock to I don't know who are some of the other ones. Yeah, no, and especially one too. Yeah, yeah. I, there's one guy I will I will I won't say the name, but there's one guy who has actually a, a huge tequila, and the distillery is not. It's not by himself. Like it, this distillery is shared with another thirteen brands, oh. uh, and it's really funny because you you can saw on his social media like he's so touchy with the people and like feeling so proud and like the photo with every, all the crew and etc. But I was there once, and the guy was like, "No, no one can even talk to me. I, I, I don't want pictures." Oh. Like, and I was like, ha, 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 "I don't yeah. buy it." Like, oh, no. Interesting. That's interesting and not surprising. <laughs> yeah. Probably, yeah, probably, yeah, they did the shoot in California, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Models and then just say, hey, yeah. And is it is it legitimately causing a shortage of agave plants? Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this is a big fucking problem. So how do we solve that problem? And I don't, I don't expect you to solve all the world's <laughs> tequila shortage problems on this show. But if you'd like to, <laughs> but like, do you have any solutions for this? Like, how do we stop it? <laughs> I mean, re- regarding the agave, of course, it's it, it is a problem, and it's so expensive right now, and it will always be a problem because once you harvest or do the hima, you have to wait at least two or three years to leave like this like the soil like have the proper rest you can keep like 
you can produce agave like once you harvest the, the first ones. You have to wait at least three years and then you can put like another, I don't know how to say it, like I forgot the name in English of, the, of this. Like, But yeah, you have to, to let the field rest and then you can keep like doing it again. And imagine at least you have to wait to harvest an agave. It needs properly between six and eight years. But there's a lot of brands who made the harvest when the agave has three years. But even though it's like six years of waiting. So, yeah, how can we stop it? I have no idea. But I, right. I don't want you guys to stop drinking tequila because it's amazing. So. <laughs> yeah, so that's the issue, right? And so basically, just like anything else in life, the more rare these plants get, the more expensive tequila is going to get. And it all gets pushed yep. off on the consumer. So while it might seem awesome that like your favorite celebrity has a new tequila brand, it's actually hurting the industry because they're making maybe lesser products, but with sucking up all the plant life. It probably will be a tequila who I'm not against like this industrial process because every tequila has their own profile and we have one tequila for each other. Like it's not saying that this one is the best, but of course it's going to be a tequila with an autoclave. It's, of course it's going to be a tequila with a roller meal, with a column. I'm not saying they're bad, but obviously the process is going to be so different if we compare that you have like this brick ovens or this copper pot steels or even the Tejona. It's, it's going to be so different. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's That's sad. And like we have gone through several like quote unquote tequila shortages in my lifetime as well like I remember even back when I was in university there was a time which was way too long ago which was a time <laughs> there was a time where tequila there was a tequila shortage and we every thought people were bullshitting about it just to raise the price of tequila but no tequila the tequila prices were getting raised because they were running out of plants exactly yeah it's it's mainly most of the reason and also as I said it depends on the production process because it's not the same that you're having an autoclave and the agave will be cooked in eight hours that having these brick ovens and your agave will be cooked in three days. Right. So, of course, if your brand has that process, like time is money. Yeah. And of course, whilst if you spend more time, it's going to cost you more. Right. And like people should be willing to pay for stuff that's more carefully produced anyway. Right. Just like yeah. anything else. Like if you, you, like you were talking, like you have some whiskeys on your, in the grander portfolio of uh, Pernod Ricard. You, you age whiskey for 15, 20 years. Nobody minds that. Like nobody minds paying for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, exactly. So the interesting thing about tequila, though, and I'm interested in your sort of uh, opinion on this, is because it has to be with blue agave plants that are rarer, like, for instance, if you make vodka, you can make it with grapes, potatoes, corn. Like, you make it with whatever the fuck, right? So you're no, there's no ever risk of a vodka shortage. There's no risk of a whiskey shortage because you can make it with grains, right? And grains are abundant. But this is a small parcel of land in the grand scope of the world that grows these plants. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Mexico has, like, more than 250 agave varieties. Mm. But as you say, with tequila, we can only use one because right. of the population of origin. Yeah. So it's yeah. five so, five states of the whole country, and Jalisco is is the, like the main state that actually produces tequila for the entire world. So. Right. Right. Exactly. So of course, like I mean, tequila should probably be ironically more expensive. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and so in the scale, of course, you don't have to, uh, the, you use agave plants, but they don't have to be necessarily blue agave plants. So there's more of it growing around the country. And so do you assume that we're not going to have these shortage issues with 
with mezcal as opposed to tequila? For the rare varieties, yeah, probably. Yeah. Because talking about a tepestate, for example, it will take you 45 years to like grow properly so you can harvest it. But if we're talking about the Spadin, which is the most popular, it will be like the same of Luagave from the Mezcal. Like mm -hmm. Spadin is like a plant that you like literally cultivate by yourself. It's not a wild variety. So right. probably mm -hmm. for the for the wild wines, yeah, of course. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so before we let you go, and thanks for giving us all the time today, and I, you also jumped in on this podcast, and uh, uh, we had a cancellation this week, and, and uh, Chris <laughs> was so wonderful to come in and jump in at the last second, so thank you for that. Thank you. But I, I'm sort of interested in, like, because like, pre-pandemic, you're doing all this traveling all over, the, all over the world. Like, your job is so interesting to get to go to all these different places as a specific ambassador for these brands. Uh, or an advocate for the brands is a better way to put it, obviously. What were some of your favorite places that you visited and some of the coolest bars that you hung out in? Oh, my God, it's a great question. I have to say that one of my favorite countries is about the Scotland. Oh, I nice. really enjoyed being there. Talking about favorite brands, that Rabbit in New York, it was really, really cool because they have this Henry Percent Memorial and Henry Percent was one of the eldest co-creators. What else? And I think, talking about bars, London, of course. I yeah. think it's, it's the capital of the bartenders. So it really is. Yeah. What's a cool? What's like if you're going to if if one of our guests is or listeners guests listeners I still have the mindset of like if somebody's at my bar one of my guests <laughs> but if I'm, we're doing a podcast right now mm -hmm. uh, if one of our listeners is going to London what's uh, some what like what's one of the best tequila bars to go to in London? Oh my God, that's a great question. Tequila bars. I don't know if it's still open, but there was a bar. The name was Fam. Okay. Uh, and they have a, a, a great agave selection, but I can recommend some bars in Mexico, of course. Yeah, let's <laughs> like, do that. Let's do that. Before we let you go, you got to do that because people love to go to Mexico. So, but of course. And <laughs> yeah. if it's someone who's listening is coming to Mexico, please let me know, and I will give you a list about restaurants, bars, and etc. But if you're in Mexico City, of course, Limantur is must. I will have to say Brujas as well. And in Guadalajara, I'll go for Matilde and El Gallo Altanero. Awesome. And what, just because I'm sort of interested in what's going on in Mexico right now, like what is the crime situation there? Like if people are coming to these major cities, because you understand as, as gringos out in the rest of the world, that's all we fucking hear about is like, the, and I'm sure that that's not the actual scenario of what goes on. So talk to our listeners about why it's still cool to come to Mexico. I mean, I think it happens in every country. Right. I mean, if I'm going to Canada, probably you will tell me like, don't go to this neighborhood at this time of no, the night. No, they're all nice. We're just all very nice <laughs> to each other at all times. Yeah. <laughs> you go to the worst part of Toronto, they're still holding the doors open for you. Yeah, before, <laughs> before you get robbed, they'll ask you if it's, if it's, if it's okay. Before. Would you yeah. mind if I robbed you right now? Yes. Would that be okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, what I'm trying to say is like, of course, like you can be mocked, you can be like in, in every part. I know not in every part of the world, but of course, them sort of places that as a Mexican, I'm not even going because I right. know that it's dangerous, you know, but for all the touristic part, like downtown or like the main spots, of course, you, you will be safe. Hmm. Like me as a woman, like I, I still had the chance to hang out like without feeling like that danger right. but of course there's as i say there's some areas that i will never be by myself not even with my mexican crew <laughs> right, right. And, but you're right that's the same all over the world so uh, that's good to know because i it, 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 
I feel like if you read, well, I mean, God, if you pay attention to the media at, all, at any point right now, they're basically telling you never to leave your house ever. But because <laughs> you're exactly. going to get shot, you're going to get uh, sucked up in a typhoon, <laughs> you're going to melt from climate change. Like If you're going to the sea, some shark probably will eat you. So, yeah, so it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to get long COVID. Like, you're not supposed to leave your house ever. Uh, so it's good to know that, like, but it is, you do hear a lot of shit about crime in Mexico, and it's good to know that things are still cool people should still be going there i was recently in mexico i had a blast so yeah and thanks so much chris for coming on the show no, we really appreciate it that was super fascinating entertaining and fun and so are you, you. so thank you thank you for <laughs> the invitation as i said it was an honor i really had a great time so thank yeah. you thank you for giving me this space <laughs> all right thank you thanks very much and now the bonus part of the episode with Alyssa dunn there are a few more weeks of barbecue left, and what to drink? Rick at the Case for Wine has many options. Whatever the budget, he can help with modestly priced Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Noir from California, or heavy hitting reds from Barolo, my favorite personal mm-hmm. area, produced by Boilo or Luciano Sandroni. Whatever the event, whatever the meal, call Rick and save $25 off your first case by mentioning the industry podcast. That's Rick at the Case for Wonderful. And uh, welcome back to a new feature we have going on at the Industry Podcast, a new monthly feature with, we're calling uh, our monthly Talk with the Badass. This is Elisa Dunn, the Badass Bartender. Good to see you again, Elisa. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you guys? Good. Yeah, it's uh, great. Yeah, yeah welcome well. back. I don't know how many fucking months ago it was that you were a guest on the show, but you it were... It was a while ago. Yeah. yeah. A more recent one, we had a spot on, uh, on the spot interview in New Orleans at Tales of the Cocktail, and yes. then we dreamed up this idea of you doing a monthly spot now, so our listeners can enjoy our new monthly feature with the badass. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about New Orleans while we have you and we can still remember sort of what happened there. Yeah, right. Now that it's like fresh in our brains and we first got to meet in person, finally. Yeah. So many people I finally got to meet in person. I know so many people from like, you know, social media, but then Mm -hmm. you finally meet them in person. You're like, oh, yeah, you're just as cool. Good. Especially for us, too. Like basically this podcast developed over the pandemic and so we hadn't like even some of the people locally who were on the show we were still interviewing over zoom for so long and then all these people that we met including you that we just met over zoom and then so yeah it was the same for me like seeing all these people in person for the first time it was awesome and uh, you and i drank absinthe in the morning for some reason <laughs> we did we did yeah. we had a nice little tasting of uh, some absinthe and some what were we drinking rum too was it all yeah. the rums oh fuck yeah. You have the rum bar, so yeah. We yeah, were, yeah, yeah. Got, I had to go for a nap after that. And you were just getting on a flight, I think, right? I was. I was yeah. prepping for a flight right yeah. there. That was yeah. me prepping for the flight. <laughs> for the flight home. Yeah. We touched on this briefly on the interview in New Orleans, but I wanted to talk basically about your experience doing the panel at Tales of the Cocktail, because we were mentioning, like when we had our first interview with you, almost it's got to be almost a year ago now. I think so. Yeah. And you were like just sort of developing this new social media presence where like, well, I mean, you were obviously had developed it enough that we learned about you and why we reached out to you to be on the show. So I'm not trying to say that you hadn't done it already, but like it really kind of exploded since then. And when I met you in person, finally, we were talking about that, like, and how I like to take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> you can take all the yeah, credit you yeah, want. Yeah, uh, but I'm uh, okay with that. <laughs> it's just like a man. 
fucking yeah. moving in and taking credit. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, like it's really been impressive what you've done. Essentially, during a pandemic, when every literally every fucking buddy was doing kind of what you do over social media on like uh, on an Instagram channel, doing at home cocktail making, but somehow your specific presence really blew up. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why do you think you stood out? I wish I could tell you. I have, I, it's just, I honestly think it's just chance at this point. I have no idea why. <laughs> well, it's part of it's your personality. You're awesome. And, and your Thank content's you. great. But like you, do you film it yourself just with on your own phone or how are you doing it? Yeah, everything is basically in my apartment. My dining room is, you know, my bar studio area. So I, got, you know, some makeshift lights from Amazon. I have my little tripod and my phone and that's about it. That's crazy because it looks really good. Yeah, and I, thank you. Yeah, and we've like we interviewed some other people who are doing some of these that look awesome as well, and they're doing like multiple cameras and. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you look at some people like you know uh, like the high proof preacher who's really yeah. amazing. You know, he has like his full garage built out into a home bar. He has like you know the professional cameras and all that. I can't work a camera to save my life. So <laughs> it's, if it can't be on the phone right now, we're we're screwed. Well, that's good. And so the one thing I wanted to talk about specifically while we've got you for our first uh, badass episode is like how you did eventually end up doing a, a panel discussion for Tales of the Cocktail, which is a huge fucking deal. Like there are people who have been going to Tales of the Cocktail for years and years and years and haven't been invited to do a panel. So maybe talk to us a little bit about how that process happened. How did you get invited and your experience doing it? Yeah, I mean... I do have to say, like, you know, we all have our goals or like what we'd like to accomplish and talk, having a talk at Tales or like speaking at Tales was always one of mine. So it's been really, really fulfilling to be able to kind of just check that off my boss. So early too, I was like, I thought for sure this was going to be like 10 years from now, 20 years yeah. from now, but okay, we're not going <laughs> to say no. Right, right. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously working within the social media, I've gotten to know a lot of the people who also do the social media stuff as well within their uh, career. And so Tiffany uh, Barr, who is the drinking coach, fabulous, fabulous woman, she reached out to me about a talk that she was planning on having. She's on the board for Tales, so she kind of put in a talk for about virtual and doing virtual mixology classes and social media and how people can really make a living doing that. And so she asked me and a couple other ones if we would kind of just talk about our experiences. And I was like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And were you intimidated at all? Like, is a lifelong dream to do it? Yeah. I was so scared. I was so scared. I thought for sure I was going to throw up beforehand. (laughs) I didn't though. I didn't. I didn't. But But yeah, no, I was like sweating and I was, I was so nervous. Well, because it's a little bit different, right? Doing what you do, which is basically talking into your phone. 90% 90% of the time, as opposed yeah. to like now you're talking to a room full of people and people are finally allowed to go out in public again. And yeah. Yeah. And you have to remember, like for the social media videos, I can edit those, right? right. Like I can, I don't have to like, I, I can, I, there's no fumbling with my words because I just edit that out. Even right. with my classes, when I do my virtual mixology classes, they're to the point now where it's so like, you're doing kind of the same cocktails and like, you can say the wrong th- thing kind of and people don't know because you know they they don't know anything right when you're sitting in front of everyone who is within your community 
you know, and you're on a panel with all of these like people who you're like, you've looked up to and now you're sitting up there with them and you're just like, what is going on? That's a whole different vibe. And yeah, it was very nerve wracking, but I'm so, so happy I did it obviously. And I just, I hope, you know, I get the opportunity to do it again and again. And I, I had such a good time. I hope I, get to continue to share with everyone. So. Did, you, did you ever think that bartending would get to this point where there would be a panel discussion at Tales of the Cocktail about Instagram bartending or online bartending classes? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's fucking crazy, right? I, I mean, I remember when I started, it was, a, it took me a very long time to really lean into the social media because I would always get the backlash for it. Like, Oh, you want to be an Insta bartender? You want to be You know, Oh, you're, Oh, you're on the Instagram, like, you know, going into work and being like taking pictures, coming in early and like taking pictures of cocktails and like people just making fun of me and rolling their eyes at me. So did I think, no, that like this was going to go this way. I mean, I guess I was hopeful because I thought there's other people doing it. So why can't I, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, no, not at all. (laughs) Right. And so that's an interesting thing to talk about as well. Like what you're doing is not the same as like trying to be a fucking social media influencer. Like, I mean, I think some people try and do that with through the bartending thing now that has become a thing, but you're Mm -hmm. actually just trying to get knowledge out into the community and, and you found a way to do it during a pandemic. And now it's just be kind of blown up into being a big thing. Right. So you're not, it's like the goal is not to be an influencer. The goal is to educate. Yeah. I mean, at first it really started as like a portfolio because I was working as a traveling bartender. I think we talked a little bit about that when, Mm -hmm. um, when I first came on and then, yeah, I mean, eventually it's, it always became about wanting to just like share my knowledge, share my passion and, you know, educate people and teach people how to make craft cocktails, not be so intimidated by it, it, you know, and, and how to improve their craft cocktails and, and just feel more comfortable about that stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's a process question for you. How do you figure out what cocktails to feature during your, doing your post and how many times do you post a, like making a specific uh, classic cocktail? So, um, I, you know, it's taken me kind of a while to get to decide what kind of cocktails, what kind of aesthetic I want to have. I, when I started out, I started out very like wanting to impress the craft cocktail bartenders. I was doing a lot of like cool ingredients, things like that. That is not necessary. You know, that's a very small niche, which is fine if that's what you want to do. But now that I've kind of moved more over to the mainstream and I am looking to kind of generate income from this and, and teach, I'm getting a little bit more where I want to be more in like the home bartender, general population, people who are interested in learning just the beginning of spirits and that kind of thing and make it less intimidating for them. So now I've moved into more of just the straight classics. Like I really don't even do that many original cocktails anymore. I really stick with this is how to make a Mai Tai. This is exactly how to make an old fashioned. This is exactly yeah. how you should make a Manhattan or how I make it, you know, whatever. Those be seem to be the ones that get the most views. That's kind of also, you know, I have to kind of go off of that a, of course, a lot. Of course, yeah. I, I do what I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I make whatever I want. If I, if I want to make something, I'm going to make it. But, you know, you, you want to, when you're generating, you're trying to generate income, you're trying to generate more people. You're going to go with what sells classic cocktails like my Mai Tai video that I put up on Instagram I think two weeks ago it's at like a hundred thousand views I'm just like and it's just a Mai Tai like it's the most basic Mai Tai you've ever seen but 
then I can go and make this like beautiful infusion and da, 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 and like, no one will give a crap. Right. Like, whatever. It's cool. But like, I'm not going to make it. So <laughs> huh, that's very interesting. Uh, but obviously a lot of this has to do with the force of your personality on the stage that you're, you're putting on. Cause like, I mean, if I went on fucking Instagram and made a mind, I know I would get two views. So, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously this has something to do with you, but that's, that is interesting to learn that like the classics are the ones that get the most views. And what do you think the reason behind that is because the amateur bartender at home really just wants to learn how to make a fucking Manhattan or if I like rather than like learning oh some creative cocktail that you made that they can probably only drink one time in a bar in a specific location yeah I think you know especially with people you know with the pandemic and now you know we're seeing at least here in the states somewhat of a a recession people are wanting to drink at home but they're wanting to have the same, they're wanting to be able to recreate those classic cocktails that they can go and get at a bar. They want it to taste the same and they just don't understand the difference, but they don't necessarily want to be making like, you know, this syrup and this infusion and then have these, all these different bottles to make one cocktail that they might only drink once, you know, they're really looking for more of like a general, a general sense Mm -hmm. of what craft cocktails can be and classic cocktails can be. So I think right. those, that's why those do, do the best. Cause that's always what I get asked questions about the most is like, how do you make your Manhattan? How do you make your old fashioned? How do you make your simple, something as simple as simple syrup? How do you make simple syrup? And I'm like, what? You guys don't like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know, like, but people don't know how simple to, syrup. I know, but it's funny. Like I, like I remember, I also remember like back when I first started bartending in the stone ages, the, like nobody knew about fucking syrups. Like we weren't doing yeah, no. here. So it was like, so like I remember being like simple syrup. How do you make that? And it was like, and then it was like, it's sugar and water, dumbass. Like, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so for the average home bartender who has not grown up in the industry, that's kind of what you're doing this show for. Yes. I'm starting to move, move into more of that mm. market. Yeah. As opposed to being very craft cocktail for the craft cocktail bartenders. Right. Right. Well, there's enough of those fucking people out there already. So <laughs> they don't need your help, Aliza. Yeah, people no, it's need like, help. You know, let me help some people who actually need some help. I don't think I need to inspire any of the craft cocktail. There's so many amazing people out there doing so many amazing things. You know, I I don't I I just that's just not me. No. Uh, you know, I love doing that stuff every once in a while, but talking about it all day, every day is a little bit gets a little bit much for me the details that go into it and all that i like yeah, it becomes a little it, masturbatory after a little while <laughs> it's like we're all just jerking each other off like, who gives a shit but yes <laughs> yes and i think it's just i mean i think doing the social media like you said with my personality i think i really with doing the social media leaned into more of the fact that i do like being a performer and i like being more personable and doing this kind of thing this mm-hmm. is like this does really make me happy as opposed to being like a little bit more detail oriented face down in a kitchen nobody talked to me yeah. this is kind of my genre and what i like doing so i think this the general public benefits more from this and me being able to like break things down a lot easier for all of them so that's what i'm going with yeah, well, it's working for you. And thanks. We're super excited about this new monthly feature. Yeah, I'm Just excited. Stay tuned. Everybody should look, go back into the archives and listen to Elisa's original episode. Uh, but then stay tuned for many monthly ones. Her name's Elisa Dunn. She's a fucking badass. And she's doing a monthly feature on the Industry Podcast going forward. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.